Hello, and welcome to Life Beyond the Numbers, the podcast for those curious about the non-finance aspects or the human side of working in accounting and finance. I'm Susan Nicriazon, and while I believe there is beauty in balancing a set of financial statements, the intricacies that underpin the workings are wondrous. The real beauty for me is in working with people. The intricacies that underpin our workings are wondrous too. And not one particular combination of input or formula will ever generate the same result. Join me and my guests as we place a lens on some of these wondrous intricacies that make us unique. And as we share insights, knowledge and strategies to inspire your life beyond the numbers. Today I'm joined by David Greenaway. Dave, it's a pleasure to have you on the programme. Thanks Susan, really glad to be here, it's great. Dave, in accountancy, we're plagued by stereotypes. Yeah. I guess salespeople are plagued by that stereotype of being the snake oil salesman or the, the greasy charmer. Yeah. But yeah. I know you and you're not any of them. Yeah. So do you feel the weight of a stereotype? Yes and no. And that sounds daft. Let me explain a bit that, yes, that stereotype's there. And I think people um, instantly go to that sort of whole Dell boy type of image of when they think of a sales person. So if you meet someone at a nice lunch and they go, what do you do? Well, I'm actually in sales. They go, oh, Dell boy, you know. But th- and I think that exists, but I think it exists more in jest and in joke because... I do believe now in 2020 that actually on the whole, most organisations represent themselves in a much, much better way, way beyond what Del Boy was doing back in the 70s and 80s. But the stereotype still exists. And actually the industry as a whole often is a little bit looked down upon. It, it can feel sometimes you tell someone, no, I'm actually I'm in sales, or I'm a sales coach or whatever. They go, oh, all right, okay, great. And you have this sense of, well, It's actually one of the hardest industries to be in. It's one of the most competitive. It's a lifetime of learning to to be any good at it. And the truth is, it's the one thing that every business needs, Um, whether they like to admit it or not. You know, you you don't have a business unless you've got sales. It is the lifeblood of every organisation. So it always makes sense to me. That was the one thing I always needed to learn and be good at if I ever wanted to be successful in anything got to learn to be able to sell stuff or at least talk competently to people with a, a sort of a, a path mapped out. What is sales all about then? God, good question. So I think, right, typically most people would suggest that it's all about manipulation and getting people to do what they don't want to do. And it's just not the case, right? I can't make anyone do anything they don't want to do. I mean, I'm not... Of course I can't. I'm not, you know, Darren Brown or Paul McKenna. I can't do that stuff. Um, so that sales is not that. Sales is a good salesperson will identify somebody who's got the need, who is basically kind of ready. They're ready to think about or move forward in some form or another on taking action against acquiring whatever it is they want. And the salesperson's job really is just, just guide them and help them and, and serve them in such a way where they can build relationship and trust and credibility, but get the individual what they want. Because, you know, 
the reality is the people don't want the thing that they're buying most of the time they want the result or the outcome of what mm. they're buying and there's a you know there's a classic analogy with the drill you know you don't buy a drill because you want a drill you buy it because you want a hole in a wall but beyond that actually you want the hole in the wall because you want to hang a picture of your family and loved ones and that that's a very emotional thing so when you say to someone what do you you know what you want to do well i want to hang a picture you better go and buy a drill I don't even like the word sales particularly anymore. It, it's the easiest and most generic way to explain what happens. But actually, I prefer things like sort of client creation um, because that's really what we, we should be striving for. It's about creating partnerships and relationships. And do you know what? It all sounds a bit fluffy and a bit cliche. And there'll be a whole load of people listening to this going, <laughs> and you know what? I don't care. Because when I say to somebody, let me help with your sales, they instantly shrivel up or their knees come up to their chest and they're all scared that I'm going to turn them into Rodney and Dale boy and all. Um, but when I say, let me teach you how to create a client, they're like, Oh, that's interesting. How do I do that? Well, it's the same stuff. I'm just free framed it for you. That's all that's happened there. What is the most important aspect of creating a client? Serve and help, serve and help them and be genuinely don't just pay it lip service, but be absolutely ready to give everything away without expectation of return and can just continue to serve and help people because people want to be helped and they want to be served well and when you do that you will find that they will typically most of the time want to work with you because it's that human to human that I mean, you know this whole classic people buy from people it's been the right it's such an old saying but it's it's true you know we do we you know we respond to the person that we're in front of so i think yeah it's just be helpful first but there's a phrase of always be closing abc and you hear a lot of great sellers i don't believe in that either it's not about closing a deal what that in instantly in my mind that goes that's it finished it's not that's just the start so when we get clients that part of it, once that's done and we've signed the document contracts, whatever, that's the beginning of this glorious thing that we're about to do. So, you know, I always think it's don't, don't be closing deals, um, start relationships. Mm. Well, relationships, we could say that about anything. That's the most important thing, the connection, the building and maintaining a relationship. But you work with sales teams that are underperforming. How does a business decide their sales team is underperforming? What are the indicators? There's a couple, but I mean, one of the, the first ones is when the, the, the uh, CFO turns up and says, you're, you're way under budget. Um, your profits have bottomed out because everyone's giving discounts and whatever else. So there's a, num there's a couple of very hard facts that come into play that might drive a sales director, MD or whoever to go huh what's going on here then because that's hard numbers and the interesting part of that is that's those numbers are only reported in history aren't they as you well mm. know it's only what happened last month or even last quarter in some instances so once you understand that what you've actually got to do then i believe is then you're looking for the warning signs there are warning signs of when sales people and teams and organizations are starting to wane and struggle and typically it can be found in the the attitude of the sales team and how they are reacting. Salespeople are genuinely very hardworking and they do whatever they can, you know, to, to create their own revenues because often they're on commission. But I do think there's an element, and not to blanket this too much, but we're a bit like water. We'll take the path of least resistance, actually. You know, we'll go whatever's the easiest route, like water and electricity too. 
because we want to get through our days and, and, and get the sales. And we salespeople generally get very energized by a sale and starting something. So if an individual um, has collects a load of no's, say a month, that can actually have a very, very um, tough impact on them mentally. Mm. Um, because we're quite sensitive, you know, there's that, that group of people, myself included, we're quite sensitive to stuff like that. We're um, a disc profile, we're a high eye. If, uh, if any of your audience know what that means, it means we're very emotional and we wear our hearts on our sleeves a little bit. You know, we're, we're high eyes and it's all about the people. It's all about the emotions and yeah, we get as energised as quick as we can be demoralised. Is it easy then to turn around underperformers or is it an underperformance or is it a straying off a path? or a mental block, like you said? Yeah, I think so. I think from my experience, I've seen that when somebody starts to underperform, it's because they've been a bit too much like water. They've looked for shortcuts and they've forgotten the basics. They've forgotten the root of what makes mm. a sale happen. And that is taking your time. So sometimes you have to sort of slow down your process to speed up your results and actually taking the time to really work with that customer, that client prospect, whoever it is, understand them, listen to, you know, what two ears over one mouth for a reason. I think they just often, they've just lost the basics and they just need what I like to call a recalibration. And a bit of perspective as well that, you know, I know you've heard me say this is, you know, we're not, we're not doctors. We're not brain surgeons. We're not dealing with people's hearts every day. Like, you know, like these amazing doctors are, we will not hurt anyone if we get something wrong. It just means we won't sell something. And, you know, in the scheme of the world, it's okay. It's all right if you don't sell that car tomorrow morning. But, but however, there is something going wrong inside of that process, which we can just look at. And often they're just not doing the basics, rushing it through and it's just slowing down and it's just having a rethink and going back to the start and doing it again. I wonder, are you a victim of your own success then? If, do you get to a point in your career where you think I don't need the basics any longer? I've got them down pat. I've been selling so well, I can now skip those stages. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, that's definitely a part of it where somebody just gets quite... Uh, complacent or just a little bit maybe cocky is the right word um it's okay it's me i sold 20 20 units last month i'll just do that on my eyes shut ha 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 go me and then all of a sudden they don't um and just again from my experience and all the jobs that i've done and the people i've worked with is when you look at the 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 teams that follow a, a, a path a journey a process whatever you want to call it they tend to perform very consistently and what you start to do then is you lose this very feast and famine of sales as an individual goes through various emotional states. And, you know, it's, it is one of the hardest things. And it's, it's one of the first areas that most small business people try and avoid. And they avoid it with various excuses of, if I build it, they will come. It sells itself. Um, I just like to work off referrals because I'm so great. And I'm like, yeah, great. But that's not really what it's all about that. You know, I get it, but that's not actually that to me, that's just an avoidance of actually doing something that's quite hard and, and learning how to do it. But as you know, once you do it and you learn and you persevere, all of a sudden the hard thing becomes quite easy and it yeah. becomes part of a course and you find yourself doing it in all angles of life and don't even realize. Yeah. And, and it's not manipulation. It's not anything weird or wonderful. No, 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 it's not because I guess if somebody is interested in the first place in, in your product or service, they're, they've come to you for a reason. Yeah, absolutely. Well, no, I think that's one of the first things to really to say to your 
your audience here, especially for their, you know, they're going to be finance professionals, is sales, when he's talking to sales guys, actually it's not about convincing someone who doesn't want something into something. You can't do that. That's not what we do. Very, very rare that happens. What we do is we find the people who are right on the edge of going, I would like this thing. And we go, great, come with us. Let's help you. We'll be metaphorically hand on the shoulder. Let us, let us walk you through it. <laughs> they, inside of that, the interesting part is the, is the language patterns that are used, the questions that are used in the right time in the right way and how to handle a lot of the objections. Because there's always an objection, be it small or be it large. Yeah. And a, a good client creator, salesperson, whatever, who just knows how to handle those things. They've spent time learning, thinking about what their clients are saying to them, understanding why they're saying it to them, and how can we, how, what can we do to make that better for them? And they don't That's, take it personally. Absolutely. Yeah, they don't, they don't let it get to them too much, you know, because it is just part of their, their everyday life. But sales and finance, I think it's like oh. oil and water. and there are tensions often because the salespeople seem to be the ones that are spending all the money and they may be the divas of the organization and the finance ones are trying to control but I think there's a lot finance can learn from sales do you see that when you go to companies do you see these tensions yeah, absolutely. You can see that tension in a three-person business. When, you, when you've got someone who's very finance-minded against somebody who's very people-sales-oriented, yeah, there's always a, a, a knocking there because they can't understand each other because they just come from different angles. Mm. Different. But the, the thing here is that both are equally important. One has to go with the other. They, they must inherently be married. Right, but it just can't be a bad marriage, and that's often what's going on. They get married, but it's just a bloody disaster of a marriage. You know, that might be a weird analogy, but that's how I've always thought about it. That I've never heard that before. But they've got to be together because the salespeople can't improve. You know, their um, their margins and and um, sales revenues and blah 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 without understanding all the information that's coming out of finance and finance can't understand budgeting and predictions and forecasting without knowing what's going on with the sales guys they're about to close a you know a hundred thousand pound deal or a 20 quid deal. you know they need to communicate and i think it's just people who go into finance are, are a very particular type of person doesn't it, it's not right it's not it's nothing it's just that's the type of person that's drawn towards as is sales it just so happens in this way and i don't think either individual needs to change who they are i'm not suggesting anything like that but i suppose it's just finding some common ground so i just sort of like to think that people can come together under a nice clear set of rules that allows them to communicate and work together and they understand that the sort of the boundaries and without the technical terminology so that everybody is speaking from the same page Yes, definitely. And do you know what? And some mutual respect. I'd be the first to say that a group of salespeople I've worked with once before definitely didn't respect their finance department. But I knew full well finance department was damn well keeping that business going in a number of ways. I'd never like to put one department in front of the other because everything has equal importance and it all has its part to play. And some mutual respect has to happen there. I've seen where a fantastic CEO, an amazing lady who brought brought to all these departments together so well and really impressive way that she understood these dynamics. She didn't try to change anybody. She just 
gave them the mechanisms to work together in the way that she wanted so she could understand the position of the company at any given moment, which is her role, right? And that's what she's got to do as CEO, leading it. So that, that was really interesting when she had, you know, around the boardroom and you've got the CFO and the sales director, all the rest of it. And they're actually having very good, solid, collaborative conversations around taking the business forward. And then apart from that, you, you can then see sales one side, finance the other side, and they're not even going to look at each other, acknowledge each other. They both say their bit as a report and they disappear off out of the boardroom and off they go for their... Mm. Mm. Okay, well, hopefully more and more will be... a. Yeah, like yeah. the first example you gave. Now, Dave, yourself, you um, managed, ran, owned several businesses. And yep. as an owner manager, you wore many hats, I'm sure. Yes. Which were the most daunting? Oh, that's a good question. The most daunting for me was finance. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I'm not naturally a finance person. I... Um, I understand the raw basics, of course, because I've had to. But when I look at a set of books or anything, I have to stop, think, really think about what I'm looking at and what it means to me in the business. That you know, some people can just look at it and it, they just clicks. It all makes sense and they can build a picture. That's not me with numbers. I found that very daunting, actually, in a lot of ways. Um, and sometimes, actually, handling the day to day with the people, continual firefighting, where I'm waking up thinking about the strategy of the business and how we're going to move forward and so on and so forth. And then someone turns up, he's broken up with their girlfriend or boyfriend or whatever. And I've got to handle this emotional mess for a morning, you know, which you want to do because we're all, you know, I want to be a good person. I want to support. However, <laughs> it's suddenly it's a reactive process. So I found some of that very challenging sometimes. Yeah. Um, there's a real balance because obviously that person's not going to be their full self at work. Absolutely. Yeah. If they don't cope with that, but then you're the owner going, I'm wasting my time on something that. that. And now all this work's not being done because you're not, oh, crikey, do I just send you? Yeah, it's this whole, and I'm sure a lot of people listening will really resonate with that. Um, and it's, it's a hard, it's hard ground to tread, but yeah. And, and I know that one of your businesses, I guess failure is the, is the right term to use, even though we kind of stay away from it as, as a word, but. Embrace it. In, absolutely. Um, so maybe you'd tell us a little bit about yeah. what happened and, and how you came out from under it. I'm happy about this because, you know, it's taken me three years and I've definitely reconciled it for myself that I had a very successful franchise. I won't say who they were because I'm under an NDA still, but um, a very successful. I was a flagship franchise owner. We were making some really good money. We had a, eight, nine people working for us and it was a successful business. Long story short, contracts were about to come to an end i went to the renewal meetings they asked some very ridiculous um things from me which i objected to we got into a little legal wrangle which turned into a big legal wrangle and i lost very quickly contract terms and conditions and due to the fact that they had much more money than me to to fight me and they won and i so i went from having a very successful business and then within a space of just two weeks, the keys were being taken off me and everything was being closed because I hadn't signed the renewal contract. So they shut me down. Just uh, like which, that. Yeah. So it, it removed all the branding and everything. It was all pulled. Um, and I was effectively blacklisted from this franchise operation and which in turn just killed my company. Um, and all the, the staff had to go. All my, that was it. Um, yeah. So it, it literally in one afternoon, it was all removed from me. 
um, bank account control. Um, and what happened there, really, the frightening bit, I think, that frightened me then very much so was how quick the banks, the blood in the water, they circled me fast. And although I was, I knew I owed money and I had no intention of not paying, I, I you know, I'm not that guy. Um, but they were on me so quickly. I could, I could barely breathe to even hand, think about hand pay back hundred thousand quid. And then next thing you know, you're in your courts and it's just so fast moving that you, you can't like reconcile how you've just lost a company in two weeks to <laughs> these banks are now all over me and I'm about to end up in a courtroom. And also, you know, the, the reality of actually starting to think, can I go to prison for this? Or like, so you get investigated criminally as well. It's just part of the course. And you could be struck off as a direct and all these horrible things. You're like, Oh my God, I, I haven't done, I've not embezzled or <laughs> ah! and you have this hot, oh, it's hard. It's horrible. It really is terrifying. Yeah. The, the truth is Susan, that I spent two or three months very down, very sad, um, very much moping if I'm honest. Mm. Um, I got two young children at home. Um, my wife was not working at that point because of our youngest. Um, and if it wasn't for the, the, the blessing of family and friends who kept us going financially and spiritually and morally, they held me up, thank goodness. But I fell a long way from being a business owner and well-respected and all these things to zero. And so quickly. Gone. Yeah, like two weeks. I mean, I kid you not. And then there's a big, very, very large lawyer organisation in London. And I got some terrifying letters from them about houses and going after family members. And they sent private detectives down and they'd seen me walking into my premises and my, they'd followed my wife and, oh my God, they'd been in our Facebook groups. And it's like, wow, whoa. Because they were so determined to make sure I didn't have a case to go back after them. They, they flat they flattened me yeah so it's it's a story that movies are made out of i think it sounds like <laughs> yeah yeah God, i don't think I'm gonna, i don't know who would play me some, <laughs> some gray old chap i expect but i think it would never happen to you right you have this sense of that never happened to me that's crazy you know no bank would act that way but it does and it did and when a company gets taken away from you through with lawyers and insolvency practitioners and all these different things my god it's like a tsunami um and it drowns you there's just nothing you can do i mean you know in perspective is that i haven't lost as much as a lot of people have lost through businesses i have personal guarantees which i know most business people have in small business land and i would advise anyone to seriously think about their personal guarantees just as a little side note there, we all sign these things, going to be fine, it'll be fine. Just be sure, really, really sure before you sign a PG. They're quite a terrifying uh, signature you put down. They can, they took my house for mm. it. Mm. We lost a lot. But this is the good news. So now I've gone through all that fear and doom. I, um, I was coming out of the three months or, or so, whenever it was, and I just started sort of going to the gym and I just started feeling a bit okay, you know, I've got to put this behind me. And um, I sort of, there was a morning, I remember it where it was a Wednesday, weirdly, and I woke up and went, that's enough. It's done. That's enough. You, you, you know, and I came downstairs over breakfast and said to my wife, and she went, oh, thank goodness for that. Went, right, are you over it? And I went, yeah, I think I'm sure. Right, it's time to get back to it. 
she said, we need you back now. She said, you've had your time, you're done. Let's get, and I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> but good for her for doing that. And she, need, she knew to leave me, but she also knew when the time was right to say, that's it, move on, get, get this show back on the road for our family, please. We were chatting actually, it was a day or two later. And she's like, so what are you gonna do? I said, you know, I said, one of the things I really enjoy, I, I just like trying to help people. And I know a lot of people say that, and we all have this urge to help others, which is great. You know, but I, you know, I really do. I really enjoy it. And I've got a reasonable amount of experience and knowledge, I suppose. And I phoned everybody I knew and said, I'm available. Do you want to work with me? And two or three of them went, oh, great. Definitely. I'd love to work with you, Dave. Um, one of which was James at Warp Line. who said, brilliant. Like, there's, there's, I was like, oh. And instantly I felt so much better. I felt like somebody actually wants me. Even after all of this, somebody still wants to work with me. Um, and, you know, fair play to James. He, he, he took me in and we just worked on his business on Warpline and, uh, and some other people at the time as well. I worked, did some great work with, loved it. And, you know, and then three years later, here I'm working with all sorts of different people, a partner at Warpline and involved in all sorts of different things, which I love. Um, Fantastic. It is a lot in that story, but yeah. the fact that you woke up one morning and you can remember it was a Wednesday. Yeah. When I've gone through something similar myself where you just know, it's like your body tells you yeah. and your brain, okay, That's onwards it. and upwards. Done. Yeah. Yeah. There has to be an end date to it, doesn't there? You can't, I can't spend the next 30 years moping about, you know, that it's just not, it can't. And yeah, you, it's, it's like a grief mechanism that goes on, you, you know, and I, of course, it's not like actually losing someone, but it's similar to, in a way. So I had to just work through that a little bit. And then, yeah, I literally just went, that's enough. Done. What What is done is done. I'd settled most of the accounts. I dealt with most of the stuff now and all the lawyers were gone. And, you know, I was like, that's it. It's over. You know, there was, there was a part of me, excuse me. You know, I was like, grow up, Dave. You know, <laughs> you got children here. They need you. Don't be that, you know, get on. Time to move on. Great. And what about work-life balance? What does that mean to you? That's an interesting question because I'm very lucky. Well, I say lucky. I'm going to rephrase that. I've worked very hard to be this lucky to get the balance that I want. But I would say that work and life these days are intertwined because of the way we can all communicate and literally you can have your business running from a mobile phone and you can take your mobile phone out for your Sunday roast and still see, do you know what I mean? So they're, they're inherently conjoined. However, I've worked very hard and set up clear boundaries now um, that everyone around me knows the days that I'm working, when I'm working. And if I'm not, I'm not. And that's, you need to leave me alone. Actually, you can send me an email, but I'm just not coming back to you. Um, and I learned that from the other business where I was working six, six and a half days a week and doing 12 hours a day, like generally blood, sweat and tears in the industry. I literally that I'll never let happen again because I missed time with my children and I missed time with my wife and my family and all that to end in that scenario. Anyway, I was like, that's just madness. What was I thinking? One thing I would say to anyone, if you want to have a proper work-life balance, I would say learn to say no. Be able to say no. Be able, and do it with a smile on your face. We're so keen to people please. 
and be all open and we're open for business. Yeah, you can contact me anytime. No, 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 you can't. I'm really going to help you, but you're going to do it in my rules. I'm going to help you Monday to Friday, nine to five, whatever that is. Yeah. If there aren't boundaries set down for anyone, then how do you know? So when I have a problem, I might have a problem at two o'clock on a Sunday and I go, I need help. Yeah. And yeah. if you take my call, then you're... That's on me. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's, that's totally on me, you know. And you're right, Susan, it's all about just setting clear boundaries and I do it with a smile on your face. It's okay, people like to know. I don't worry now at all about saying, do you know what, I'm at uh, my daughter's assembly or actually it's brownies and I'm going along to make fairies with my daughter. I don't care, that's what I'm doing at 4 p.m. So I'm afraid I'm not available because that's the balance for me. That's the balance. I'm not ashamed of balancing, and I'm sure nobody is, of having my time with my kids and my family as well as time for me because my work is important and I love it genuinely and I'm committed to it, but it, it isn't the, the, the top, you know, it's high up, but you know, the priorities is my children, my family, my boom, 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 but it's there. I've got to be a bit careful that I don't want to sound all blase that, you know, I've set my life up where I'm in control of it. However, I do know there's a lot of employees out there who just don't have that ability and I can understand that pain and they'll go, well, it's all right for you. However, I do think that people are in a position to talk to their managers or supervisors and say do you know what in the next quarter i've got this assembly that's coming up or i want to be here i'm just letting you know now these are part these are very important activities to me and you know if i need to make up an hour or so i'll do it or whatever you but you know that what i'm trying to say there is don't be scared to go and say to, to whoever it is that you need to talk to so actually i need my life too i appreciate my job and i would always do it but i need my life too that's the balance mm. uh, not just one way and but i also think it's important to do that when you start working somewhere because if you get into a routine to please like you said earlier or always say okay yeah i'll take that on and think well after a couple of months i'll set boundaries it becomes really hard to claw those back yeah it does oh it really does i also think it's it, it is up to an individual to be at least happy with their balance and whatever way that is if the balance is imbalanced in what i might look at it it doesn't mean that it's imbalanced for them no exactly and you know i'd always i always encourage i think to you've got to take things head on i think that's one of the biggest lessons i learned is if you're not happy about it moan about it for a little while but actually you need to go tackle it or change it because after a while it becomes on you you know after a while it's your fault now because now you're not talking to whoever and going having a grown-up conversation about what you need it's exactly the conversation I'm having with a CFO at the moment yeah. is that, you know, you do realize this is on you now. Yeah. You know, yes. yes, there are things that you're telling me regularly, but at this point, this is on you. Yeah. And we all have the power to change everything. Even if circumstances are forced upon us, you still have the power to change and, and move forward and get where you want to go. I, I would say that's one of my biggest things is there's a turning point. Mm. Mm. and then you must take responsibility for it right that, that's totally on you i think some people i've spoken to along my way have felt a little i've been a bit harsh and hard on them when i'm going i've got no sympathy whatsoever because you've been moaning about the same thing for two bloody years it's like go and sort it then like what are you doing is Do if the fear is taking that first step i think people stall making decisions 
it's actually not the decision that's difficult, it's the consequences. And if you can think about, well, what are the consequences of this decision and can I live with them? Then making the decision becomes much easier. But people get stuck on the decision. They do. And after that, they get stuck on the communication of the decision, don't they? Because sometimes the decision, most of the time, if you're making the right decision, it's the hardest one. And then how do I then go and tell people around me, whether they're work colleagues, wherever they are, that I've made a tough decision that's going to impact them and go and deliver that in such a way that allows it to happen because I need it to happen, but not upset them too much. And we start to live by other people's opinions and what we think they may or may not feel about us based on something we do or say. And that's and most of the time they'll say, I can't believe you lasted this long. Yeah, but exactly that, right? Most people can't, well, bloody last. Thank goodness you said something. It's been on my, you know, you should have told me a year ago, like, what are you doing? And absolutely, and I think I've always been astonished when I've had quite an honest conversation with somebody um, that I'm close to or in a work environment or whatever, and they just go, well, I'm surprised it took you this long. Like, I was expecting it, Dave. That's one of, so a few disciplinaries I've had to do in various businesses and tough conversations, I've gone, yeah, I was expecting that. Fair enough, fair cop, you know, like, well, okay. Yeah, and I, do you know, interestingly, I think that's probably one of the key things that I've learned over this time amongst all the sales and mar- all this stuff, actually it's much better just having a more honest and open conversation with someone as early as you can, because it's not up to you how they take it. That's how I see it. That's their reaction is their reaction. That's their choice. They get to choose how they react to anything and that's up to them. What's my choice is how I, I know I've got to say something and it's how I deliver it. So I just do it in a calm and polite and kindest way I possibly can, but I'm not going to stray from telling someone what I think and the truth of it, if it's appropriate. And then it's down to them. That to me actually is one of the, one of the biggest things in business, especially small business where, cause you've got to be able to tell your clients the truth and you've got to better talk to them about money. And no one likes to talk about, you've got to better talk to them about what's actually going to happen. What can they really expect from you? And you've got to have those tough conversations with your staff and your suppliers and your partners. And they are uncomfortable, but isn't that where all the magic is? Isn't that where all the good stuff comes from? Yeah, because once you've done it and you are still alive and you realise that, okay, maybe your heart's beating faster or whatever, you survived. And actually the next time will be easier and so on and so on. Do you know, one one little line, I don't know if any of you your listeners might use this but one thing i will say to my clients when i know we're at that final meeting where we're probably going to either close and and sort of start a deal or not or or do some work whatever we're going to do is i always say to them i want you to know it's absolutely fine to say no to me and that's how we're going to start this meeting so i'm going to ask you when we get to the end of our conversation it's either going to be a yes a hell yeah i'm in or it's a no dave not right now and either way is absolutely fine what i don't want us to get to is a maybe or a meh I don't know because I'm at that point now and no is fine so when you give someone permission to say no to you if that's what they really is on their you know on their mind on their heart and that's what they and then it's so much easier and you're in a much better position the pair of you you know and yeah and I think that works managing staff as well definitely yeah. you know if you ask someone to do something and say it's okay to say no to this yeah. challenge me and I actively ask our walk line team to challenge me constantly about the yeah. project. Because 
I'm not the all seeing. I don't know everything. Of course, I flipping don't. I want there. I opinion. know that. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Good one. I like that. <laughs> I want them to be smarter than me. Like I don't. I'm not interested in being the smartest person in the room. I just want stuff done and customers happy and build a company. And often that it's much cleverer people than me that do that around me. So, yeah. Dave, if somebody would like to connect with you or to work with you, if there's a sales team that feels they're underperforming, how does someone get in touch with you? You can find me on LinkedIn, mm-hmm. which is David Greenaway, and my contact details are on there. And do you work remotely as well as in person, Dave? Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, so um, Zoom has become all our best friends, hasn't it mm-hmm. now? Yeah, so I'm very happy with Zoom and Google Meet and the phone or whatever it is people want to do. Well, Dave, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. So nice to just talk and, about it. Um, and maybe we'll do it another time. Absolutely. Yeah, definitely. Brilliant. Thanks so much, Susan. Thank you for listening today. And if you enjoyed our exploration of life beyond the numbers, please subscribe to this podcast and share it with others who might also be curious about their own life beyond the numbers. <laughs>